0: Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together.
1: Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you've got a Bible handy, open up to your Old Testament, to the book of Jonah. We're going to spend a couple of radio programs talking about the story of Jonah and some of the great practical applications that we can take away from this. Now, we all remember the story of Jonah from when we were children. Even many non-Christians can recall the story of the prophet and the big fish that swallowed him up. The tale has been told and retold for centuries by most secular storytellers as a myth. But if we delve into the meat of this small book, we'll find that it is a treasure trove of valuable and completely applicable lessons, even for the Christian today. And I hope that through our study together, we'll all come to a greater understanding of how marvelous the lessons are and how magnificent our Lord is through providence, miracle, mercy, and judgment. Now, before we begin our study, let's get a little background information. If you're not very familiar with the Bible, Jonah is found in the Old Testament. It's the first two-thirds-ish of the Bible. So, if you open up to your index in the front, you'll find Jonah there in the Old Testament. You'll notice when you get there that it's a very short book, maybe only three pages in your Bible. But it's quite a story. The main character's name, obviously, is Jonah. He's the son of a man named Amittai from the town of Gath-Hefer, which is a border town in Zebulun. He prophesied to the great city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and it probably took place between the years 793 to 753 BC. King Jeroboam II was the one who reigned in Israel at the time. And again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, King Jeroboam II actually reigned over Israel during a a pretty successful time for them. Now, it was successful materially and politically speaking, but not spiritually speaking. King Jeroboam II followed in the footsteps of other Israelite kings who came before him, in that spiritually he was quite a disappointment, though as a ruler he was very successful. He reigned during a time of political stability. He had some military success, and he gained quite a bit of territory for Israel during his rule. But the rampant idolatry that so characterized Israel during the divided kingdom period was still alive and well during Jeroboam II's time. He himself couldn't be characterized as a moral or good man in any sense of the word. And Israel followed in his footsteps. They followed in the example of idolatry and blatant immorality. Now, that's, that's where Jonah comes from then. Now, not that Jonah himself was an immoral man or that Jonah was an idolater. No, in fact, he was a prophet of God. And he probably spent his life's work trying to turn the tide spiritually for Israel. Maybe that's one of the reasons why he was so resentful when God asks him in chapter 1 to go to Nineveh, to the Assyrians. These are the enemies of Israel. And Jonah has been spending his time trying to bring back Israel from the brink of spiritual demise and destruction, only to go and waste his time with the heathens in Assyria? Isn't there more important work that God would have Jonah doing? Isn't it more important that Jonah stay in Israel with his people, with his countrymen, trying to restore their spiritual fortunes rather than spending his time around the Assyrians, the enemies of Israel, an aggressive and violent empire that was bent on taking over as much territory as possible and, given the opportunity, would most certainly conquer Israel if it could? So that's a little bit of the historical background for this book. But I guess the next question we have to ask is, is this really a historical book? Did the events in Jonah actually take place? Now, some scholars want to argue that the book is simply a fairy tale or a myth or a parable. But Jesus Christ himself believed in its authenticity He mentions the story of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41, and in Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. Jonah is mentioned in the history of the kingdoms in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. So it would make sense in terms of the internal consistency of the Bible to see that Jonah was regarded by the Jews, by believers of the Holy Scriptures, as being a real historical event. But there's an even deeper theological implication here. If Jesus regarded the story of Jonah as a real historical event, and he connects the story of Jonah with his own resurrection, again in Matthew chapter 12 or in Luke 11, then the Christian also has to accept that these things are true. The story of Jonah is as real as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those two things seem to go hand in hand. Otherwise, Jesus would not have gone out of his way to connect his resurrection, at least in some symbolic way, with the story of Jonah. And perhaps this is the very first lesson that we can learn from Jonah. God's ways are unsearchable, and to doubt God and his miracles is to doubt the very creation itself. One man, Homer Haley, once said, The ability or inability to accept a miracle depends on whether or not one spells his God with a capital G. We learn from the example of Jonah that God is completely out of our reach when it comes to understanding his thoughts. Jonah tries to think for God, to ignore God, to revise God's mission form, but in the end, Jonah learns what it means to simply accept that God is the one with the power and God is the one with all knowledge. Insofar as God has revealed his knowledge to us, we can certainly understand that. But to understand the fullness of the mind of God, to understand everything that he's got going on, all the connections that he's making, his providence and his power, we can only understand what he tells us. We can only understand what he reveals to us. We cannot know the full mind of God. And we have to accept that. Jonah tried fighting against God. Jonah tried arguing against God. And in the end, he just had to accept that God is God, and God's ways are higher than his ways, and God's ways are better than Jonah's ways as well. So without further ado, let's go into the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Notice how direct and simple the command to Jonah is. There are too many people out there who want to believe that the Bible or God's will is too confusing. It's too complicated for the average person to to actually accept and to do. In the case of Jonah, the command was the very opposite. One might feel sorry for Jonah if he was given the task of building a really complicated mechanism or if he had to perform some feat of physical strength. But that's not what God asked. God asked him to do a very simple, very straightforward thing. Arise, go to Nineveh, and preach. Now, the same is true for us today, my friends. The commands of the Lord are not burdensome. The weight of Jesus Christ is never a heavy load. We see that in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, that the command of the Lord is actually quite pleasant. We also see this played out in Jesus' own words, where he says, come to me, All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Jonah was taking the life-giving word of God to a heathenous, vile, dangerous people. The Assyrians built their empire on the bodies and the bones of those they conquered. They literally piled up the skulls of people killed in battle. Massive piles of them. They put heads on pikes. They flayed people alive. They literally, they skinned them alive and removed their flesh from them as they watched. That was the empire of Assyria. And it's no wonder that their wickedness wafted up to God like the stink of a pile of dead animals. God knew what was going on in Nineveh. It didn't escape his sight. God knew the wickedness of that great nation, but he also knew their potential. And that's the amazing thing about it. One might look at Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire in general and come to some conclusion that they were completely worthless morally speaking. And that would be very easy to do. That would be a totally justifiable conclusion to come to about the Assyrians, that you wouldn't want to encounter them in the time period when they existed. You wouldn't want to be somebody conquered by them. You wouldn't want to be a citizen, uh, given the moral weight that you would had to carry. But God sees souls. In fact, later on in chapter 4, God explains himself to Jonah in the following way. You had compassion for a plant. This is chapter 4 and verse 10. But you didn't work for it, and you didn't cause it to grow, and it came up overnight and perished. Verse 11, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as all of the animals that are there? God's first thought wasn't destruction and judgment. God's first thought was, this is a people who need mercy. These are people who need to learn what it, what it means to be forgiven and to repent of their sins. And what's more wonderful than proclaiming a message of repentance to a people whose only need was repentance? One lesson that we can immediately enjoy is the fact that the sins of these Assyrians didn't go unnoticed by God. There is no sin There is no injustice, no vile word or action that goes unnoticed. We learn the same thing from Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14, which says, God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. So what's Jonah's response to the command of God to go to Nineveh and preach to them? Let's pick up here in verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So not only was he escaping responsibility, it says that he was escaping from God. He wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord, to go with them to Tarshish to hide from God. Now it's not that going to Nineveh was more difficult or anything. Nineveh was only about 500 miles away from Palestine. Tarshish, on the other hand, was 2,000 miles away, in the opposite direction. I guess I should admit that I sometimes feel a little too much like Jonah when I'm asked to serve God. We don't always take into account that Christianity is an all-day, everyday lifestyle, that the call to serve may happen even at the most inconvenient times, when I know there's a person who needs the gospel, yet I try to escape that responsibility, I usually end up a lot like Jonah, stuck in my own mess. Jonah thought that by running away from God, the responsibility of serving him would diminish. And, of course, Tarshish was the furthest place that he could go to get away from God. It was a port city all the way in modern-day Spain. And in the world at that time, that was the frontier. But Jonah didn't realize that God was not a local deity. He wasn't just the God of Israel. He wasn't just a God who was attached to this place or that place or to a mountain or to a river. He was the God of all. The God of all creation, of all people, of all flesh. He's not going to lose track of Jonah no matter how far away he goes. And we see that played out now in the rest of the story. Verse 4. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. You know, so there's no atheists here on this ship. And that's an important point to bring out. That that this kind of terror always brings out the spirituality in people. Even people who maybe were too busy making money, people who were too busy preparing the ship, people too busy with their jobs, too busy thinking about this or that, suddenly the storm comes up, and they're they're face-to-face with their own demise, and suddenly everybody becomes religious. So they turned to their own gods. They cry out to their own gods. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. I wonder, how was he able to fall sound asleep? How, How was he able to sleep through that storm? In the Gospels, we read about the way Jesus was also able to sleep through a storm. That There was one time on the Sea of Galilee when he and his disciples were crossing from one side to the other. And a great storm comes up then and Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion. And it takes his disciples waking him up, shaking him practically to get him to respond to the storm. Now, Jesus was able to sleep, I think, because of his faith because he knew that no storm could destroy him. He had a mission that was from God, that nothing physical would be able to derail. Maybe Jonah was just so indifferent that he was able to sleep. Maybe he was at a point now where, having rejected the call of God, having rejected the grand purpose for which he was called at this time, that maybe Jonah just fell into a kind of carelessness, that he just, he just didn't care anymore. There's a reckless abandon. And I think you see that same reckless abandon in people's lives today that, you know, once you've cast God aside, uh, once you've become that person who quits going to church, when you become that person who quits reading or quits praying, or you make some proclamation on Facebook that you don't believe in God anymore, or you're giving up on religion, you know, w- once you've given up, on those kinds of things and you've walked away from God, when you've turned your back on God and walk the other direction, it doesn't take long for you to have the same kind of abandon that Jonah does, where you just, you stop caring. You, you stop caring about consequences. You stop caring about the ramifications of your choices. You start living more dangerously. You start making choices that are more dangerous. And I think that's just Jonah here. Jonah turned his back on God, and here he is facing Tarshish, facing demise, and he's asleep in the back of the boat. So the captain approached him in verse 6 and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And I wonder what Jonah was thinking there. How can I call on God? I just walked away from him. I I just quit on God. I can't call on the same God that I just walked away from. And each man said to his mate in verse 7, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck. They've turned to superstition now. They want to find out who's at the bottom of this. What's the real problem here? So they're turning to superstition, casting lots. So they cast lots and the lot, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, the lot fell to Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, You know, actions speak louder than words, don't they? Now, perhaps somewhere deep down inside, the faith that Jonah had was still there. Maybe it was just a flicker. It was just an ember right now, but but maybe that faith was still there. And when pushed, when, when really pressed for it, he will confess that he does believe in the true God and that he's a prophet of that great God of heaven. Verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said, how could you do this? It's interesting, isn't it? That it, It takes some unbelievers here. I don't know exactly who these people are. They don't believe in the God of Israel. They believe in other gods. As it says back in verse 5, they each cried to their own gods. So they don't believe in the God of Israel. But isn't it interesting that these heathens, idol worshipers, they're the ones who are the morally upright individuals in this story. They're the ones who have a right to complain to Jonah. They're the ones who have a right to call him out for the fact that he has been faithless to his God. How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him in verse 11, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. So Jonah has accepted it now. Might as well take it, take his lumps. Might as well be cast into the sea for all he's worth. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And again, there's, there's, a, real, there's a real honor here. Uh, maybe it's a sailor's code, or it's just the, the moral uprightness of these men in this situation. I don't know what's bringing this out. But there is a real honor here in the way that they're not willing to just throw Jonah over the side of the boat willy-nilly. They try to get back to land. Throwing him over the side of the boat is seen as a last resort to these sailors. They called on the Lord and said in verse 14, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. And it does make you wonder, when these sailors got home, having experienced this awesome and terrifying thing, did they seek out the Hebrews and try to learn about their God? Did they want to find out who the God of the land and the sea was? Who is the supreme, almighty God? Who is the one true God? Not an idol, not a little statue that you pray to, not just a concept or a philosophy, Did any of these sailors go home with a greater appreciation and a deep curiosity about the true God, the God of power who they just witnessed? So finally in verse 15, after all of that, they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And in verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, we're just about out of time in our program today. So we're going to go and stop here at the end of chapter. And we'll pick up in chapter two next week. Let's make a couple of quick points here about this great fish. Now, I'll admit, it is hard to believe that a giant fish could swallow a man And that man could survive inside the fish's belly for three days. But the thing about it is that once you concede the power of God in all things, and and once you've accepted that God is able to miraculously interact with this world, then really a giant fish swallowing someone isn't that hard to believe. In fact, Jesus links, as I said earlier in the program, Jesus links the sign of Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights with his own resurrection. That in the same way that Jonah was swallowed by a fish for three days and three nights, so Jesus would be buried in the ground in his grave after the cross for three days and three nights. Now, a couple of things to think about, though. Was it a fish or was it a whale? Or was it a sea monster? Because New American Standard Translation in Matthew chapter 12 even refers to it as a sea monster in verse 40 there. Other translations might call it a whale. Here in the Old Testament, it's called a great fish. Well, which one was it? A sea monster, a whale, or a great fish? Well, the Hebrew word that's used here in the book of Jonah is gadol And it actually is all-encompassing of large sea creatures. Any large sea creature fits into this Hebrew category. And we have to understand that when the Hebrews applied words to various animals and creatures, they didn't apply it the way we do today by species. That's a system that we've come up with in the last couple centuries. Now, they understood things categorized by, by more function, Uh, That's why in the Old Testament you find that bats and birds are categorized in the same grouping in the Old Law. And that's why a giant fish and a whale would be categorized in the same way. That even though they're very different biologically, as we understand that, they functionally are the same kind of being. They're large creatures that live in the sea. So there's no confusion there. There's no problem there. If you see fish or if you see whale, there's no discrepancy there. It's simply a large sea creature. That's what swallowed him up. Now, what about the three days and the three nights? Was he in there for a full three days and a full three nights? What about Jesus being buried for three days and three nights? That's just a Hebrew colloquialism that can refer to any amount of time that is generally three days. Now there's a lot of other things that we can talk about and we'll get to them in our program next week. But for now, please study Jonah and come into our program next week excited to hear the rest of this story.
0: Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monta Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monta Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com.